If you have a Bible, our passages are Ecclesiastes 4, all of Ecclesiastes 4. And then we're going to skip over a few verses at the beginning of chapter 5 and pick up in verse 8 through verse 20. I want to make a promise to you. We're not going to skip anything in Ecclesiastes. We're skipping 5, 1 to 7, and we're going to come back to it. Next week we have the Bordens, but the week after we have the Bordens, we're going to come back to chapter 5, 1 to 7, and then we're going to press on through the rest of the book. We're not going to leave anything out in our study of Ecclesiastes. I have been greatly disappointed. I'm staying a few weeks ahead in my study in Ecclesiastes. I've been greatly disappointed that some of the books that I bought to study Ecclesiastes tracked in great detail through chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, and then they start to get fuzzy in 5, and then they largely drop out in 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and then they pick back up in 12. We're not going to skip anything. We're going to cover the whole book. We may not give equal attention to every verse in the book, but we are going to cover all of the book as a whole. And so tonight, 4, 1 to 16... And it goes with 5, 8 to 20. These two sections go together. And we'll talk in two weeks about why the preacher would put the material in 5, 1 to 7 right in the middle. Uh, It's intentional and it will be helpful for us to lay the groundwork tonight so that we can understand those verses in a couple of weeks. The title of tonight's message is Greed and Envy. Two things that I am certain no one in this room struggles with, but maybe, just maybe, you have a family member or a neighbor or a nephew or somebody you know who might need this information, so you should pay attention, even if it's not for you, maybe you can share this with somebody else, or maybe, just maybe, these are things that we struggle with and we wrestle with, and we need to hear the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. So let's just think for a moment before we jump in about our identity, how people establish their identity. Some people are fond of the phrase, you are what you eat. I know, grown, right? You are what you eat. I'm today, if this is true, I'm somewhere between a Jason's salad and a handful of Reese's cups that I got off Crystal's desk This evening, I didn't go home for dinner, and I got a little hungry, and I said, I got to have something. So I'm somewhere between a salad and a Reese's cup, so you are what you eat. A lot of people think, they don't say this openly, but a lot of people think you are what you do. You are what you do. And you've probably easily made this mistake or this assumption when you meet a new person most of the time, we don't introduce ourselves to a new person and say, tell me what kind of person you are. We say, what do you do? What do you do? Do you stay home? Do you work? Are you retired? Do you teach? Do you work in the oil field? What do you do? And that gives us some sort of box or category to put that person in. You are what you eat. You are what you do. One person famously said, you are what you is. Anybody know who said that? Frank Zappa. Any Frank Zappa fans? I've seen some old pictures of Steve Isonina with big hair, and I I listened to some Frank Zappa today to channel some Ecclesiastes thought, and I thought, I can see Steve in some of those old pictures jamming out to some Frank Zappa. Here's the lyrics to one of his songs. Do you know what you are? You are what you is. You is what you am. A cow don't make ham. You ain't what you're not, so see what you got. You are what you is, and that's all it is. So, you are what you eat, you are what you do, you are what you is. A lot of people today say you can be whoever or whatever you want to be. That's the ruling mantra of our culture. And whether we realized it or not, over the last 15, 20, 30 years... Disney indoctrinated an entire generation in the idea that 
There is no difference between boys and girls. You're the same. You can do this. You can do this. We're all the same. Things are interchangeable. You can do whatever. Uh, Nothing ought to be able to hold you back. You can be whatever kind of person you want to be. And that worldview, whether we realize it or not at the time, was rooted in a very unbiblical idea of the self. And it's come to roost now in all sorts of confusion about our identity and who we are, who we can be, who we can't be. And the Frank Zappa song that I quoted just a moment ago is really sort of passe. You ain't what you're not. Well, that's not the wisdom of our age. The wisdom of our age says you can be what you're not. It's up to you. Who are we? David Gibson says this, there's an old saying that you are not what you think you are, but, pay attention to the punctuation, what you think you are. So just stop and reflect. Whom do you spend most of your time thinking about? The preacher in Ecclesiastes takes it for granted that it's you. People fill their thoughts and plans with themselves as they constantly work out how to navigate the world in a way that will give meaning and happiness, and says the preacher, that is the very source of our pain. So Gibson's argument is that we're all preoccupied with ourselves, and when you come to Ecclesiastes 4 and 5, we have the added bit of information that ourselves are closely aligned with our stuff. So as we're preoccupied with ourselves, we often find ourselves thinking about our stuff. And as we think about ourselves and our stuff, we inevitably, instinctively, because of our our sin nature, we end up comparing ourselves to other people and their stuff. And the result is greed and envy. And greed and envy play out in terrible ways. So if we had a big idea or a summary statement... For Ecclesiastes 4 and 5, taking out 5, 1 to 7, this is what it would be. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. That's straight out of 1 Timothy 6, 6. When godliness is used as an adjective, you don't capitalize it. Some people get bothered by that, I know, but you don't capitalize it when it's an adjective. It's a characteristic. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. 1 Timothy 6 is a passage about money. It's a passage about stuff. It's a passage about the way your heart feels about money and stuff. And it's warning you in 1 Timothy 6 about the danger of loving your stuff and wanting more stuff and wanting other people's stuff. And the takeaway for Paul speaking to a young pastor, Timothy, is, Timothy, there is great gain. That word gain ought to ring a bell when you're studying Ecclesiastes. Chapter 1, verse 3, what gain do we have for all our toil under the sun? Well, one of the answers to that question shows up in the New Testament, and Paul says there is gain in godliness coupled with contentment. Godliness and contentment. The world says there is gain when you get more stuff. The Christian believes what God says, not what the world says. And God says there is gain, not when you just get more stuff, but when you are godly and you are content with what God has blessed you with. So that's going to govern what we talk about tonight. Take your Bible and let's read a couple of verses. 4, 1 to 3, and then we'll jump to 5 and read 8 and 9. These sections go together thematically. So 4, 1 to 3. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought that the dead who are already dead, are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. 
chapter 5, verse 8 and 9, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is a gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. So what do we do with these verses? Greed often results in systematic political oppression. Greed, the desire for more, often throughout history results in systematic, intentional Political oppression. The people with power throughout history have tended to oppress those who did not have the power. And part of the motivation in that is they were greedy. They wanted more. The preacher is pretty direct. He talks about all the evils that have happened under the sun. And he makes some pretty bold claims. He says, you know, I look at all the evil that's happened under the sun. And I think people who have already died are better off than the people who are here putting up with all of this evil. In fact, he says, as... He just sort of speaks from a stream of consciousness. I think those who haven't even been born are even better than those who suffered some oppression and then died. At least they're not experiencing it now. The unborn, those who have not yet been born and walked under the sun and faced this evil are even better off. I like to listen to history podcasts and as I read these verses, I thought about the topics that history podcasts tend to talk about. They tend to talk about war and violence and people taking land or things from other people and bad people who rise to power and the things that good people have to do, which sometimes are not good things, but the good people have to do those things because there's a greater evil in just allowing evil to continue. You can look at the the taking of lands from indigenous people throughout history. You can look at all sorts of oppressions that have happened. You can look at slavery. You can even boil these things down from a political meta level down to an individual personal level. And you can think about evils that have been done against you and suffering that has been inflicted upon you. And some of you are thinking, this is all very dark. I, I just want to listen to Louis Armstrong. What a wonderful world in the trees and the mountains and the babies. and the, It's just wonderful. Everything's wonderful. And you know what? It's a good song. And it's a true song. There is a sense in which we live in a wonderful world. And God is a good God and he's given us a lot of things to enjoy. That's half the story. It's not all the story. Another half of the story is that there is oppression and evil done under the sun. And there are many, many people who are crying tears. He says it twice in chapter 4. And there is no one to comfort them. There is no one to comfort them. The preacher feels the weight of human suffering. He feels the weight of it. That's what he's describing in these verses, feels the weight of human suffering. Let me give you two more comments before we move on here. I just want you to understand that Jesus felt the weight of human suffering. This is one of the things that makes Christianity distinct and unique and unparalleled when you compare it to other worldviews. It's the idea that the Creator entered into the suffering of His creation and He experienced it fully. And so we're not going to trace these verses out, but I'll just mention to you that there were times when Jesus encountered people who were sick. They were just sick, chronically sick, and it grieved him. And he sighed and he groaned, not because he was put out with those people, but because he understood their suffering. There's times when Jesus encountered stubborn angry, defiant unbelief. The sin in people's hearts came out in their disbelief of Jesus. And it grieved him. It didn't irritate him. It grieved him. 
Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's beginning to take on the weight of sin. He's beginning to carry the curse. He's beginning to be made sin for us. Galatians 3 and 2 Corinthians 5. And he sweats drops of blood. It's not a light, trivial, flippant thing to feel the weight of human suffering and evil. The preacher talks about it. Jesus felt it. We ought to feel it. We ought to feel the weight of that. Oftentimes, Christians just pile up cliches and greeting card catchphrases and we have an answer for everything and we encounter suffering people and we think, oh, I know exactly what to say in this situation. We say something thinking it will make something better and it doesn't make anything better. I think a much better approach is to be of the mindset of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 when he says, you know what? All of creation is groaning under the weight of this curse. It's a heavy thing. Human sin and the consequences of our sin and the evil and the oppression that takes place under the sun. These are evil, heavy, heavy things. And Americans can keep paying money to comedians to make us laugh, hoping we can forget these oppressions. And many of the comedians can keep drinking and drugging themselves to death. Because they know you can't laugh suffering away. We know deep down you can't laugh suffering away. And maybe we should just stop with the greeting card cliches and the, the quoting the Bible verse. Well, have you read Romans 8.28? I think you should read Romans 8.28. Well, I think you should read the rest of Romans 8. And creation is groaning under the weight of oppression and evil and sin and suffering. I think one of the things, as I've talked to people about Ecclesiastes over the last month or so, it's a hard book to read. There's things in here, and we haven't even got to some of the hard stuff yet. Just wait for about three weeks. I mean, there's some hard things to take in from the book of Ecclesiastes. At once, it's like a punch in the nose. Makes your eyes water, disorients you. There's also like a cup of cold water thrown in your face and there's something refreshing about it and you say, at least it's honest. Because I've thought that. I've had people come up to me over the last month and say, you know, I'm kind of relieved to find such and such in Ecclesiastes because I've thought that, but I didn't know if I was supposed to be thinking that. I've felt that, but I didn't know if I was supposed to be feeling that. And there it is right there in Ecclesiastes. It's a brutally honest book. Greed often results in systematic political Oppression. So we've talked about greed. Let's just be clear about the difference in greed and envy. Greed says, I want more. Envy says, I want yours. And they're connected and they're related and they're intertwined and it's sometimes hard to disentangle them in our hearts and our minds. But there is a difference. Greed says, I just want more. And envy says, you know what, I just want yours. Envy is a problem in addition to greed today. In the United States of America today, I don't want to minimize poverty at all. I don't want to be flippant about poverty. But in the United States today, it's a fact that most of the people who fall below the poverty line live lives of such comfort that they are unprecedented historically. Kings of the past would love to live with some of the comforts that poor people experience today. This is true in the United States, and it's even true in the global world. Did you know that today, 91% of human beings on the earth own a smartphone? 90, not in the United States, in the whole world. Anywhere you travel in the world, odds are, 90% of them will have a smartphone. And I don't know if you've ever just stopped to think about the thing you carry around, the, the power in this, the technology in this, the capabilities of this. It's unprecedented that 90% of the people on the earth, this is not just something kings carry around, or presidents, or billionaires, 91% of the people on the planet have this thing. Globally, 
globally. Poverty is real. It's real in the United States. It's real globally. It's real. And it's crippling in many places. But globally, there are fewer poor today than there have ever been in the history of the world. We have more. So our greed is all solved, right? Well, no, it's not. And there's that thing, envy, that says it doesn't matter how much I get because you're still going to have some and I'm going to want it. Greed wants more. Envy wants yours. So let's read the rest of this. Ecclesiastes 4, beginning in verse 4. This is going to be a long section, so stay with me. Ecclesiastes 4, 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool holds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all of his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. If they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and a wise youth than an old foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice, for he went from prison to the throne through his own kingdom, though his own kingdom, he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is vanity and a striving after the wind." Jump down to chapter 5, verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he's the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came. And shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat, drink, and find enjoyment. And all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God, God, that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, for this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. So believe me, I know that sounds like a mishmash when you read through it. You just read through it the first time and you think, he's all over the place. What's happening here? He's talking about uh, folding hands and eating flesh, and then he's talking about three, four, three-fold cords, and then he's talking about people dying and losing all their money, and what, what, what is happening here? And I think when you step back, and some of this will be clear when we look at 5, 1 to 7 in a couple of weeks, but I think when you step back, the two big issues that he's describing are greed and envy. And so let's just start with this. Our envy of others is vanity, and it's striving after the wind. That's right there in verse 4. All the toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. It's vanity. It's hebel. It's fleeting. It's smoke. It's mist. It's a vapor. It's like striving after the wind. It's chasing something that you're never going to catch. And I think in the rest of this section, 
You can take verses here and there. There may be some discernible pattern, although really smart people disagree about it. But I think you can lump some of these verses together and sort of summarize them under a few headings. And so that's what I aim to do. I just want to show you five reasons that envy is vanity. Here's the first. Laziness is a foolish alternative to envy. And that sounds way out of left field. But it's a reminder that shows up repeatedly in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's connected to this question of envy. And the preacher is smart. He's not foolish. He's not stupid. He's not aloof. He's not up in an ivory tower. He's a man of the people. And he knows if I keep hammering these people about greed and envy, somebody's going to get the bright idea, well, I'm just going to quit my job and go home and wait for a check to come in the mail. And whatever I have, I have. And whatever the government sends me, the government will send me. And I'll mooch off my neighbor and I'll ask my dad for this. And you're telling me not to join the rat race and be part of the system. And, you know, all these things are fleeting and whatever. So why should I work for any of it? And I'll just, I'll just do nothing. And right out of the gate, he stops you dead in your tracks and says, no, 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 no. Laziness is not the option, is not the alternative here. Laziness is destructive. That phrase, the folding of the hands, in the book of Proverbs is always associated with the sluggard, the lazy man. The lazy man folds his hands. He's relaxed in his easy chair. He doesn't work. He's too lazy. He's a sluggard, folding his hands. And this passage says, He's really eating his flesh, which is a weird Hebrew way of saying he's destroying himself. Laziness is destructive. It will destroy you, and it will destroy your family, and it will certainly destroy a people and a nation, and it will destroy a church. Laziness is destructive. It's not the option or the alternative to being so wrapped up in stuff and work that you just work all of the time. Laziness is a foolish alternative to envy. Secondly, you need to know this. Loneliness is a devastating consequence for the workaholic. Chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Loneliness is a devastating consequence. So the workaholic thinks... If I just give myself completely to work, I'll make more money. If I have more money, I'll be more happy. And many times what that does is it leaves you alone, not even taking into consideration the reality that you won't be more happy. And then you'll be lonely on top of it. It'll be worse. It's a compounding of the problem. It's not a solution to the problem. I joke with you on Wednesday nights and sometimes on Sunday mornings, you always people on this side always think I'm looking at them. The people on this side always think I'm looking at them. So I'm just going to look right into the foyer and I'm going to say, think about older people that you know. Older. Older people. Have you ever asked older people? All an older person is is someone older than you. You ever asked an older person, tell me about when you were young and you didn't have anything. I've done that with family members and some of you. You know what I've found? When you ask somebody that question and you ask them to talk about their life, they rarely hunch over and say, oh, well, it was really bad. They actually usually get a sparkle in their eye and say, oh, let me tell you about the good old days. Let me tell you, you need to know this. I think about my grandparents. They uh, talk about when they were newlyweds and they were at TCU. My grandma has a uh, tuition bill from her first semester at TCU was like 300 bucks for a semester at TCU. That's a pretty good deal. You could have got that locked in. And uh, they had nothing. They had nothing. They had a TV that you could only see if the lights were off. That's how dim the picture was. And they had no air conditioner, so they would get their sheets wet and put them on the bed at night because that was your air conditioner, wet sheets. And their entertainment in their apartment was, turn the lights off, wait 30 seconds, turn it on, see how many cockroaches you can kill. 
And when they tell you those stories, my, my granddad and my grandma, when they tell you those stories, they're not miserable. They, they get a, a sparkle in the eye and say, oh, those were great days. Those were great days. I'm not old. I'm older than some. I guess that puts me in that older category. But Brooke and I got married young. And we joke and talk about sometimes when we were newlyweds, living in Amarillo and then living in Louisville, we would have $30 for groceries for the week. 30 bucks. And this was before you had a calculator on your phone. So we'd go to Kroger or Albs or Market Street or whatever with a calculator. If you put something in the cart, you add it up because you got 30 bucks. If you get to like 28 and you want something that's four, you're like, well, we've got to take something out. And when we talk about that and joke about it, like we don't get weepy. We say, oh, yeah, that was, that was fun. Ah, good old days. Good old days. Contrast that with the workaholic. It's usually men, just be honest. Usually men, not always, but usually men. I think about older men that I've gone to visit in their homes and they're lonely. And their kids don't want to be around them at all, period, at, at all. In fact, I think of one man whose kids wouldn't come by because they were all fighting, waiting for him to die so they could have all of his stuff. And he's lonely and he gave his whole life to work, 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 work because he thought more stuff would make him more happy. And there he is at the end and he's got all the stuff and he's not happy and he's lonely and the problem's compounded. And that's what Ecclesiastes is talking about, this, this man working. Does he ever stop to think about who he's working for? For who are you? Are you toiling and depriving yourself of all of these pleasures? Loneliness. Loneliness is a terrible thing. Terrible thing. People sing about it. The Beatles sing about it. Have you ever listened to the song Eleanor Rigby? It's the only song the Beatles play no instruments on. There's just strings, and then they sing. The backstory is fascinating. It's just interesting backstory on how the song came about but the song is so depressing there's Eleanor picking up the rice after the funeral no one cares Eleanor nobody cares and there's Father McKenzie he's fixing his socks at the night why are you fixing your socks nobody cares you're all alone he's writing a sermon nobody's going to hear it where do these lonely people come from where are they going I don't know there's no answers in the song it's just this long, beautifully arranged, but horribly depressing reflection on loneliness. Loneliness. And the preacher's warning us about loneliness. It's a devastating consequence for those who idolize work and money. Number three, earthly success will ultimately end in death and anonymity. Anonymity, meaning we're going to forget you. It doesn't matter what you do, what you accomplish, how much money you have, we're going to forget you. talks about this poor youth and this rich king, and it's better to be a poor youth than a rich king, and he's too arrogant to take advice. Someday he's going to die. Look what he says in verse 18. There's all these people that he led. There's no end to all the people that he led. Lots of people. They all knew the king. But those who come later are not going to rejoice in him. They're going to forget him. And we've talked about this. We might remember a name and some sort of accomplishment or position associated with that name, but we forget the people. And it doesn't take long. Just a few generations, we forget the people. Can you tell me, off the top of your head, without getting on Google or Ancestry, can you tell me something personal about your great-great-great-great-great-grandma? Probably not. Probably not. Can you tell me who won Super Bowl MVP in 1973? It was a big deal in 1973. Super Bowl MVP. You know how many people watch that game? Wikipedia knows. You don't know. Can you tell me who the 14th emperor of the Assyrian Empire was? Ruled the known world. You don't remember? We forgot him. He was the king. 
There's no end to the people that he ruled over, but the people who come after him, they just forget them. Number four, increased wealth brings increased anxiety. I don't know why we don't believe this. Increased wealth brings increased anxiety. He talks about the man in verse chapter 5, verse 11 and 12. He's got all these goods and they increase. And uh, he's got a full stomach, but he can't sleep. Does he have indigestion? Maybe. Maybe he needs some Tums. But I think what he's saying is the more stuff you have, the more stuff you have to worry about. So, Brooke and I have been married about 20 years. We've graduated from our $30 a week grocery bill. For all of our life, we've had two cars. All of our married life, we've had two cars. Now we have a 16-year-old and we have three cars. You know what that means? Four more tires. Three more windshield wipers. One more gas tank. One more transmission. One more battery, more stuff, more anxiety. Johnny Cash said this, success is having to worry about everything in the world except money. Number five, earthly wealth is easily lost. This is the getting towards the end of chapter 5, verse 13 to 17. A man invests his fortune in a business, it goes south. Have you heard of that sort of thing in the Permian Basin? It was a surefire deal. Went south. Man dies, he has nothing to give his children when he dies. The book of Proverbs explains that more fully and says that's a bad thing. You should want to leave something for your children. That's what Proverbs says. The preacher here talks about a man who showed up naked and he leaves naked. He showed up with no pennies and we're going to bury him with no pennies. I mean, that's how it works. Look what he says in verse 16. What gain is there? What gain is there for all the toil? The answer is in verse 17. Darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger. Envy is chasing the wind. Now you get to this point and you think, this is why I don't like Wednesday nights in Ecclesiastes. It's so negative. It's so dark. It's just so bad. Why can we just... Sing something happy and read John 3.16 and call it a night. The book of Ecclesiastes is not calling you to be a pessimist. It's just calling you to be a realist. And the problem for most of us is that we live in a culture where when it comes to ultimate important things, most people just have their head buried in the sand. We just sort of Pollyanna, it's all good, it's all okay, it's all going to last forever, I don't want to think about it. And then when somebody comes along like the preacher, it's just jarring to us. And it's why a lot of people translate that word hebel as vanity. Oh, it's just vanity, it's just meaningless. But I'm just telling you, you can't slip into pessimism when you read this book. You just got to land squarely on realism. We just got to be honest, and we just got to be real. And so we've done some of that, and we'll end with some more realism and some more honesty. There is great gain in godliness with contentment. One of the key things to keep in your brain when you read Ecclesiastes is that it's not the first book in the Bible. So You ought to read other stuff in the Old Testament to make sense of it. And it's not the last book in the Bible, so you ought to read the rest of the Bible, the New Testament, to look back and make sense of it as well. 1 Timothy 6.6, there is great gain in godliness with contentment. That's not just Paul to Timothy in the New Testament, that's here in the verses that we just read. So let me point out a few truths. Quietness is better than vain toil. That's Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. It's no coincidence that in 1 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy, you ought to pray for your leaders that you would be able to live a quiet life. A quiet life. Don't love money. It leads to all kinds of evil. 
There's great gain in godliness with contentment. And you ought to just pray, Timothy, that your rulers would allow you to live a quiet life. Quietness. Better to have two handfuls of quietness than to chase after the wind. And to want more and to want theirs. The person who is quiet is not talking about being an introvert. Not talking about being shy. It's not being, talking about being soft-spoken. It's talking about the person who knows who they are. And they know who they're not. And they know who God is. And there is a settledness with the lot that God has given them. A quietness, a calmness, an acceptance, a contentedness with who they are. David Gibson says this, Why don't you just live the life you have now instead of longing for the life you think you'll have but which you actually can't control at all? That's a quiet person. Number two, relationships are better than wealth. Relationships are better than wealth. You get down to 9, 10, 11, 12. I don't know if you noticed as we read it, but it seems very out of place. Talking about the two are better than one, and the three is better than two, and you need somebody to do this. You know, I, I thought we were talking about envy and greed. We are talking about envy and greed. And the preacher saying to you, having some people in your life who love you and care about you and will help you and support you is better than having money. It's better to have somebody holding the ladder for you. It's better to have somebody that will hand you the hammer when you drop it so you don't have to come all the way down. They're helping you. It's better. It's better to have somebody when you fall off the ladder that will help you off the ground than to be alone. Two is better than one. And three is even better. It's good for kids to have parents. A mom and a dad. And grandparents when that's a Possibility is good to have people in your life. Relationships are better than wealth. Number three, wisdom is better than success. Wisdom is better than success. This is verse 13, 413. Better is a poor and a wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. Americans are pragmatists. We want to know, does it work? Is it faster? Is it better? Is it shinier? Is it newer? That's what we're obsessed with and focused on. And the preacher is calling us to something better, to wisdom. Again, I'll quote Gibson. I'm quoting Gibson a lot. He's about to skip a whole bunch of chapters, so enjoy him while he lasts. Gibson says, It's possible to know the price of everything but the value of nothing. Number four, contentment is better than greed and envy. Contentment is really what we're shooting for. This is over in chapter 5, verse 18, 19, 20. I don't want to say a whole lot about these three verses because we're going to circle back to them in about three weeks and we're going to talk about them in depth. Verse 18, 19, 20. I just want to point out to you, and I tried to emphasize it as we read those verses, that in 18, 19, and 20, suddenly we're talking about God again. God's there. God's there. God's there. We're not just chasing the wind, but we're actually thinking about God. G.K. Chesterton is always quotable. G.K. Chesterton said there's two ways to have enough. Two ways to have enough. Number one, get more. Number two, desire less. You have enough. Get more. See how that works? Or desire less. And what he's talking about is contentment. And what the preacher's telling you is that contentment is only possible when God is factored into your life, in your mind, in your heart, in your living. Contentment is not easy, is it? Can we be honest? Trying to be honest in Ecclesiastes, it's not easy. Phil Riken, for many people, the quest for contentment is a lifelong struggle. The fact that we have resisted the temptation of money before does not make us immune from it today. I think it's a battle you're going to have to fight throughout your life. Contentment. Pushing back greed, pushing back envy, pushing back the desire for more, pushing back the desire to have what others have. It's just an ongoing battle. And the reality is most of us struggle with it. Most of us, I'm giving you a lot of song lyrics because it's amazing how many times 
people who are thinking about life pull stuff out of Ecclesiastes, whether they meant to or not. The Beatles wrote a song called You Can't Buy Me Love. It says, I don't care too much for money. Money can't buy me love. Contentment. They also wrote a, wrote a song called Money that says, the best things in life are free. You can keep them. You can keep them. The free things. I want money. Which one is it? Do you not care about the money or do you just want the money? Well, what day is it? What song am I singing today? That's the battle for contentment. John and Paul and Ringo and George had to fight it and you got to fight it. Tomorrow you're going to have to fight it. A year from now you're going to have to fight it. If you don't miss your Bible reading and devotion for a year straight, you're going to have to fight it the next day. If you come to Sunday school and big church and early service and Wednesday night and you never miss for a year, you're going to have to wake up the next year and you have to fight this. Contentment, greed, envy, contentment. Contentment is better. It's only possible, the preacher's telling us, it's only possible when you begin to factor God into the equation. So let me show you a famous painting that illustrates this. It's a, a painting by a guy named Quentin Massis from the 1500s, and the painting is called The Money Lender. Some people call it The Money Changer, so there's a translation issue there. The Money Lender and His Wife by Quentin Massis. So you got a couple. There's Quentin on the left. you got a couple, and they're in their house. They're inside somewhere, and they're busy doing things. And I know the, the picture's kind of small on the screen, but you can Google it. You can look it up. The woman is reading uh, religious literature. She's having her devotions. Does she look to be very focused on her devotions? Seems a bit distracted. Have you ever been distracted in your devotions? Maybe just a little bit. She's looking over at her husband, and he's counting money. Gold coins. And it's kind of hard to see in this picture, but he's got a little scale in his hand and he's got a coin on it and he's weighing it out. And most art nerds say that she's not even looking at the gold. Most people think she's looking at that bag of pearls right down there on the bottom left, that little black thing. And it looks like it's got BBs in it, little gray thing in the middle. Those are pearls. And most people think that her gaze is actually looking at that bag of pearls. She's got her Bible open, and she's turning the page, scrolling through Facebook, looking, looking at the pearls, looking at the gold. How does that coin weigh out? She's distracted. And you look at it, and you say, well, these people are just clearly greedy. I mean, there's spirituality right in front of them, and they're bored with it, and they're just obsessed with having stuff, more stuff, counting their stuff. They're greedy and they're probably envious and they're just terrible people. This is a hopeless painting. The preacher of Ecclesiastes probably painted it. But if you look carefully, down at the bottom in the middle, right there, there's a mirror on the table. And the mirror is not facing the moneylender or his wife, but it's facing away from them. And if you zoom in on that mirror, you actually see a window in the shape of a cross. And outside of the window, it's hard to see on this picture, but take my word for it, outside of this window, in the distance, there's a church. Big, tall steeple. And Massus is saying, greed and envy are real. And it's hard to fight it, even when you know you ought to be having your devotion. It's hard to fight it. But there is something else out there that can help you in this battle. What exists is not simply contained in this room with the moneylender and his wife. There's something outside of them that offers hope to their greed and to their envy. So we'll end with two thoughts of gospel hope. Number one, I would remind you that Jesus died and he died at the hands of greedy Envious men. Judas. I want more. Even if it's just a little more. 30 pieces of silver, not that much. 
Not that much. But he wanted more. Greed, he betrayed Jesus. The men who ran the racket in the temple where Jesus had just cleared all the people out and the animals out and the money changers out, their livelihoods, the way they made money, was being threatened by Jesus and the things that he was saying. They wanted more, and Jesus was a threat to that, and they were envious of Jesus. Now, granted, they weren't envious of Jesus' 401k or the size of his bank account or his Rolls Royce or whatever, but they were envious of his fame and the crowds and the people and his intelligence, and he's always making them look stupid. These are greedy, envious men. Jesus died at the hands of greedy, envious men. And I didn't put it on your notes, but as I was thinking about it this afternoon, uh, this afternoon, I think it's worth saying, he died at the hands of greedy, envious men, and he died for greedy, envious men and women. He became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. Died at the hands of greedy, envy men for greedy, envious men, which means the gospel is true and it frees us from the sins of envy and greed. The gospel frees us from these sins. Frees us from their penalty, ultimately, when we're in Christ. And Paul explains in the heart of Romans that the power of sin in our lives, the power of sin in the life of a believer has been broken. We still have to fight these sins, but we're not doomed to lose that fight and lose that battle because of what Christ has done for us and what Christ is doing in us. And the ultimate reality, the ultimate truth that we cling to when we think about this passage in light of the gospel is that you're not what you eat. Not true. You're not what you do. That's not your identity if you're a Christian, what you do from the nine to five or what you used to do. You're not what you eat. You're not what you do. I don't know what Frank Zappa is singing about still, so we'll just shelf him. We'll just say very clearly, you can't be whoever you want to be. It's not possible. It's an illusion. It's a fantasy. You don't have to find your identity in having more. And you don't have to build your identity on having theirs. Your identity is in Christ, if you're a Christian. And you've been adopted into God's family. And the way that you think about life and money and wealth is filtered through your faith in God. And that brings you not just to most of what we trudge through in chapter 4 and chapter 5, but it brings you to the end of chapter 5 where God shows up. We'll just read these verses one more time as we close. Behold... I have seen to be good and fitting. What I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat, drink, and find enjoyment. And all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart.